0: everyone, this is Amy Hill. Thanks for tuning in to Amy on the Hill, a podcast born out of Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, which says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. This is episode four of Amy on the Hill. I'm so glad you tuned in today because today we are going to be discussing two issues that I think uh, are problems for so many of us. And those two issues are the issues of guilt and shame. I think that we all deal with guilt and shame in one way or another. And today I want to discuss what the Bible has to say about that. I said this a couple of weeks ago and I'll say it again. The reason I am so passionate about getting into what the Bible has to say is because I'm pretty sure that none of you listening are interested in hearing my personal philosophies on how you should live your life. And you should not be interested in my opinion or philosophy on how you should live. What is powerful? Is what sacred scripture has to say about us, about others, about the world in which we live, and about God. And that's what this podcast is about. So I'm glad that you tuned in today. As always, let's kick this off with a time of prayer, and then we're going to jump right into the content. Dear Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for that privilege to be able to approach you in the name of your Holy Son. No one deserves such an amazing gift. Help us today to be open to hearing from you. In Psalm 119, 130, we learn that the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Let that be true today. Let your word give us light. Let your word give our simple minds understanding. I also want to pray, Lord, for each individual person praying along right now. You see each and every one. I pray that you would bless each person with more of you. That is the greatest blessing I could pray over anyone. And again, I pray that for each person praying along right now. You are the portion. That we seek today. Please use this time to draw us closer to you and to continue to conform us into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today, as I mentioned, we are going to be discussing guilt and shame. But before we get into that i want to give a quick update on our upcoming book study tim keller's book jesus the king i am so happy to announce that we will be starting to read jesus the king next week the week of february 6th that means you have one last week to grab a copy of this book if you want to start on time you can buy or order this book Wherever you buy your books, I have a link to buy it on Amazon. If you go to the resources section of my website, amyonthehill.com, or of course you can pick it up at a bookstore or download it to your Kindle. I know my friend Kelly McFarlane, who was on the podcast last week, has the audio version of this book. That may work best for you with your learning style or schedule. I love audiobooks. books. Um, sometimes I do prefer to read an actual physical book, especially if it's a book like this one that I want to think about and, you know, I like to underline and make notes. But again, do whatever works best for you. If you know you're not going to read it if it's a physical book, but you would listen to it, if it's an audiobook, then set yourself up for success. Do what works. Again, we are starting to read next week. So we won't be discussing the book on the podcast next week because no one will have read it yet. In fact, the podcast next week is going to be very short. I'm basically just going to jump on, uh, give you a a few more details, let you know what to read for uh, week one. But the reason that I'm telling you this now, again, is because I wanted to give everyone one last week to get a copy of that book if you want to participate and also if you want to invite friends. I also wanted to say that if you're interested in viewing the reading schedule in advance, there is now a link for the reading schedule at the bottom of the resources page on my website amyonthehill.com. So if you want to check out the reading schedule, you can do that now. Okay, friends, I was trying to think of a way to lighten this topic by like, making a joke or something to get the discussion going today. But the fact is that guilt and shame are serious problems for a lot of us. And there really isn't anything funny about that. So I'm just going to jump right in and get us started. If you have a Bible handy, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, so it's easy to find. But if you don't have a Bible handy, no big deal. I'm going to read Genesis chapter 2 for you now out of the New International Version, starting in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now I'm going to skip down to chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, are the first biblical examples of guilt and shame. And as you know, we are going to talk about that today, but before we get into the part of this text that talks about guilt and shame, we need to acknowledge the serpent. There is a serpent in the biblical account that we just read, but in today's society, I think it's less popular to say you believe in the devil than it is to say that you believe in God. Belief in God isn't really acceptable, but if you start talking about the devil, you may as well have lost your mind. Few people are really comfortable talking about the reality of the devil and demons. God and angels are okay, especially if you bring them up when people die. But talking about the devil and demons seems primitive or juvenile. Yet the Bible is clear that the devil and demons are real. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion, seeking someone to devour. Ephesians six twelve says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That means people. We do not wrestle against people, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the word of the Lord. The Bible is replete with passages that say the devil and demons are real. But if we're honest, I don't even think we need the Bible to know that instinctively. Evil today seems to be becoming more and more obvious. My husband, Matt, actually said to me that there have been occasions in his life uh, when it has been easier for him to believe that there is a devil than it is for him to believe that there is a God uh, because The evil in this world is so real and so obvious and it's not even like trying to hide. But still, for whatever reason, we feel silly talking about the devil or about demons. Charles Baudelaire, I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right. I'm the queen of mispronouncing French names and and really any any kind of complicated um, word. I'm always looking it up. I, I looked this up. Baudelaire. I don't know. It's a. It's a, he's a 19th century French poet. But he wrote, um, and you may have heard this before. The devil's best trick is to persuade you that he doesn't exist. The devil's best trick is to persuade you that he doesn't exist. And society seems to have fallen for that trick and decided that the devil isn't a real threat because the devil isn't even real, but he is real and he's also really mean. Devil is real and he's also really mean. And one of his favorite things to do is to burden us with feelings of guilt and shame. Let's look back at the passage we read in Genesis chapter three. What do we see? First, the devil plants a question in Eve's mind regarding God's command. He says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, interestingly, and this is a side note, but I want you to take notice of this. Eve answers, by adding some additional provisions to God's actual common. If you remember, God told Adam originally, he, he said, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. But when Eve answered the serpent, she said that God said, you must not eat from the tree and you must not touch it or you will die. But God never said they couldn't touch it. And I just think that's interesting uh, because we do that all the time, don't we? We love to make up additional rules for ourselves and for other people that God never said anything about, don't we? So again, that's just a side comment, but let's beware of that. Let's be aware of what God's word actually says and what it doesn't say. Okay, so... After Satan questions God's word, after he plants a question in Eve's mind regarding God's command, next Satan outright denies God's word. So first Satan says, did God really say he's questioning God's word? And then the serpent says, you will not certainly die. Now, so now he's outright denying God's word. And then after that, Like the sneaky, slithering serpent that he is, Satan takes it one step further and he replaces God's word with a lie. John chapter 8 verse 44 says that Satan was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So after he raises questions about God's word, and then after he denies the truth of God's word, then Satan replaces God's word with a lie of his own. Satan says, you will not certainly die for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan makes up some new rules here, his rules. And the Bible says that Eve saw that the fruit of the tree was pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Another side note here is that what was being offered to Adam and Eve was pleasing to the eye And desirable. Please don't miss that. When we get trapped in situations like this ourselves, and we all do, I do, you do, we often get trapped by things that looked good on the outside. Things that had some desirable qualities. These things aren't always so obviously bad. The Bible says the fruit on the tree looked good for food. So please don't think everything relating to guilt and shame stems from some seedy, sordid sin that we should have seen coming a mile away. Sometimes it does, but sometimes it doesn't. A lot of times it doesn't. The serpent is crafty. And as I said, he is mean. Look what happens right after Adam and Eve eat the fruit of this tree. The Bible says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the Bible says they hid from God. They were guilty and they were filled with shame. I am currently uh, reading a book entitled The Strategy of Satan, How to Detect and Defeat Him by Warren Wearsby. And in that book, Mr. Wearsby calls Satan out on the fact that he On the one side, lures us into sin, but then on the other side, after we've sinned, he accuses us and endeavors to isolate us from God and others through shame. Wiersbe says Satan is subtle and merciless. He writes, before we sin, while he is tempting us, he whispers, you can get away with this. And then after we sin, he shouts at us, you will never Get away with this. Wearsby continues, when you and I have disobeyed God, Satan moves in for that finishing stroke. He attacks us in our heart and conscience. So you are a Christian, he sneers. You are not a very good Christian. Look what you have done. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us day and night before God, and we are filled with shame, and we hide from each other, and we hide from God. You guys, I'm sitting in a room by myself recording this, and it's still kind of weird for me to talk to you like this because I can't see your faces and you can't see my face, but I hope that something that is getting through to you as you listen to this, is how serious I really am about this and how passionate I am about all of us being free of guilt and free of shame. When I first started thinking about what I wanted to say today, at first I was just thinking about the word guilt. I think uh, it started uh, a few weeks ago when a friend of mine posted an article on Facebook about mom guilt and so many of some of the best stinking moms I know were commenting on this article because it spoke to them. They were writing comments that they suffered with these feelings of guilt and Then I started thinking about some other friends I have, friends who maybe aren't married or haven't had children for whatever reason, but the feelings of guilt associated with that. And then I started thinking generally about guilt, how it plagues so many of us in so many different ways. You know, those thoughts, we aren't good enough. We haven't done enough. We've done something we shouldn't have done. We haven't done something we should have done. But as I thought about it more, I realized that I was actually thinking about two different things. I was thinking about two distinct and separate things. I was thinking about guilt, but I was also thinking about shame. And guilt is distinct from shame. We are guilty when we do something wrong. And we often suffer from shame as a consequence of guilt. So guilt and shame are two different things. I also thought it was interesting when I realized that sometimes we feel shame even if we aren't guilty of anything. We might just be believing a lie, uh, believing a false narrative about ourselves that is causing us the pain that is associated With shame. So often guilt does yield shame, but if we turn that around, I think it's safe to say that shame doesn't always originate with guilt. Sometimes we have feelings of shame that are not tied to an act of guilt. In the example we read from Genesis, however, Adam and Eve did feel shame as a result of guilt, they covered themselves in shame. And hid because they had transgressed God's Word. So at first I want to address guilt. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 21 we read that in response to Adam and Eve's transgression the Bible says, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So check that out if you want that's Genesis chapter 3 verse 21. After the account that we read earlier, the Bible says that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So here we see in response to this transgression that God covers his children with skins. And this is clearly a foreshadowing of what God will do to cover The sins of his children right away. He made provision for Adam and Eve's sins through a temporary covering. Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2 says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit There is no deceit. Love that. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves, but their fig leaves evidently were not cutting it. They needed God to provide a covering and God provided a covering. Here again, it says, God provided a covering with garments of skins. I looked up the Hebrew word for skins in Strong's Bible concordance. And it says the implication of the definition of skins is as you would think, hide, leather, or skin. So it seems God used the skin of an animal to provide a covering for his children. An animal was killed to give Adam and Eve a covering and again this is clearly a foreshadowing of what god will do to cover the sins of of his children throughout the old testament uh we see a complex sacrificial system through which god's people continually had to sacrifice animals to atone for sin That seems barbaric to us now, I think. It's pretty safe to say. I remember taking a uh, Jewish law class in law school and not having uh, been one who had read very much of the Old Testament at that time. I was so thrown off by the sacrificial system. I did not understand why animals were being sacrificed or what that pointed to. I didn't realize that the first animal was sacrificed in the Garden of Eden to pay for the guilt and cover the shame of Adam and Eve. Maybe you didn't either, and maybe you're horrified hearing it, or maybe you're wondering why we still don't sacrifice animals to atone for our sin. I can't wait (laughs) for us to get into this in our book study, Jesus the King, because over those nine weeks, we are going to get into all the details. That answer that question more fully. But for now, I want to explain by simply saying animals are no longer required. Uh, we no longer need to sacrifice animals because the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, finally and completely paid the price for our sins, the sins of those who put their faith and hope in Him, when He though without stain or blemish, took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing and sacrificed his life for our perfect and eternal covering. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, finally and completely paid the price for our sins when he, though without sin, took upon himself the curse for our sin and sacrificed his life for our perfect, an eternal covering. Do you remember when Jesus was dying on the cross? He said, It is finished. Well, it is finished. You guys, I screw it up all the time. <laughs> people think I'm kidding or exaggerating because I do things like host a podcast about the Bible, but I am not kidding and I am not exaggerating. I am a straight up idiot. I am constantly messing up in my life and for a long time that prevented me from walking in victory. Do you remember what Warren Wearsby wrote? I read it earlier. In the podcast. Satan is subtle and merciless. Before we sin, while he's tempting us, he whispers, you can get away with this. Then after we sin, he shouts at us, you will never get away with this. Listen, every single one of us listening to this podcast myself included we are all guilty but if we want healing we have to stop hiding from god in the bushes and behind our fig leaves we have to come out into the light and allow god to give us our eternal covering when we put our faith and hope in jesus christ the bible says The sin that causes shame is nailed to the cross. Jesus paid for our sin. That means shame has no place in our lives. Sometimes, however, we may mistake shame with conviction. And it is important for us to distinguish between the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's when God not Satan, when God brings an area of sin to our attention. We have to be able to distinguish that between feelings of shame. Now, it's interesting. I was thinking about the fact that sometimes people are guilty and they feel no shame at all. And that's not a good thing either. Not or no guilt or no conviction. They feel nothing. You know, they just they're completely numb. Um, So... To have a feeling of remorse isn't always a bad thing, again, when it is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But we do need to be able to distinguish that from uh, a work of the enemy, a work of the devil, when he is really weighing us down with feelings of shame. On this issue, Warren Weersby writes, a feeling of guilt and shame is a good thing if it comes from the Spirit of God. If we listen to the devil... It will only lead to regret, remorse, and defeat. When the Spirit of God convicts you, he uses the word of God in love and seeks to bring you back into fellowship with God. So he's he's going for reconciliation. When Satan accuses you, he uses your own sins in a hateful way, and he seeks to make you feel helpless and hopeless. True conviction from the Spirit will move you closer to the Lord. Now I mentioned earlier, that shame doesn't always stem from guilt. Sometimes shame stems from a lie, a false narrative. We believe about ourselves. You are a failure because you never got a college degree. You're not beautiful or worth anything. You are a bad mom. You are not a mom. And so you failed as a woman. The enemy is stinking mean. Okay, I'm not messing around. I know know it's weird. Again, I'm talking to myself, but I hope you're getting this. Like, I'm serious. He knows just where to target each one of us. And it's unique to each one of us. Our insecurities, he knows them. And he won't just lie to us. He'll bring up things that are true about us. He'll bring up scripture and try to misapply it. But do not despair, because that sounds scary, right? He's going to bring up scripture, and if we don't know the word of God, we're not going to know what's true or what's a lie. We need to know what the word of God says, because he will tell you it says something else. He will take it out of context. That's why it's so important that we are be students of the word and also that we sit under uh, biblically sound teachers, who are not going to lead us astray. 1 John 4.4 4 says. Little children. You are from God. And he who is in you. Is greater. Than he who is in the world. So do not despair. If you're new to this faith thing. And you're hearing all about our enemy. And it's scaring you. Because you don't feel like you're equipped. To take him on. Just know that. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You stay hidden in the shadow of his wings. You stay close to the vine. You abide in him. And just like we learned several weeks ago, uh, his word is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Day by day, he will show you which next step to take. If you stay close to him, you don't have to worry because he will not allow the enemy to touch one hair on your head without his say-so. For many years, and this still happens sometimes, but for many years, I dealt with bouts of shame. And it really affected my relationship with God because I would mess up inevitably. And I always felt like God was mad at me. Um, Were sick of me. That was a That was something I would feel he was just kind of like putting up with me He was just tired of me and I would want to hide like Adam and Eve The thought of praying felt completely hypocritical To me and I prided myself on not being a hypocrite. So I wouldn't pray I would sometimes try to cover myself with fig leaves, you know, make myself presentable, kind of, clean myself up, then maybe I would be acceptable because I did want to be in relationship with God, but my efforts to clean up my own mess never got the job done. I needed God to provide me with a covering. Many of you probably know that before I had children, I was an attorney, and in the line of work I did, I appeared in court a lot. I had a lot of courtroom experience. Some attorneys rarely see the courtroom. I was in the courtroom so much, like for weeks at a time. And every time I would appear in court, I would have to state my name and position. I had to give a formal explanation as to who I was and why I had standing to address the court. So I would say something like, may it please the court, my name is Amy Baxendine Hill from the Office of the Public Defender and I'm appearing on behalf of my client, defendant blank. And I would address the court uh, on behalf of my client. And just because you know I was an attorney, that didn't mean I could just stroll into any courtroom and start entering evidence onto the record. I needed to have standing to be there. And I learned to approach God in a similar way because none of us has standing before God with our fig leaves. And the enemy knows that. And he wants to use that against us. He wants to keep us in the shadows with our shame, afraid to approach God, aware we are in ourselves unworthy. But throughout scripture, Jesus tells us to pray in his name. want you to check it out. John chapter 14, verse 13. John chapter 14, verse 14. John chapter 15, verse 16. John chapter 16, verse 23. Look those verses up. And throughout many other times throughout scripture, Jesus tells us to pray in his name. We don't have standing before God, but Jesus does. And he's got us covered. Kelly and I were (laughs) talking about this last week. She was laughing at me, but I said, prayer like reminds me of like the ultimate name drop. (laughs) Like, like say you get pulled over on the side of the road, but your brother is the chief of police. You may be guilty, but you drop that name and you're on your way. It's like that when we come to the Lord in the name of Jesus, we're not coming in our own unrighteousness. We are coming in the righteousness of Christ. And that's what gives us standing. That's what gives us confidence instead of shame. For those of you who still may be feeling shame in areas where maybe you think you don't measure up, whether you think you're a bad friend or you're failing as a mom or you have failed in your career, or you've somehow failed as a woman. I have something to say to you. If you think you're failing, what I want to say is <laughs> you might be failing. <laughs> I don't know your situation. I know my own situation and I fail every single day. But the crazy thing is, and I want this so passionately for you too, I'm okay with that. I still have hope despite that because my hope is not in myself. My hope for my children is not found in me. I am not my children's savior. My hope for my friends is not found in me. I am not my friend's savior. My hope is not found in a political candidate or a promotion or a husband or Twitter followers or the perfect home or even the perfect church. In the words of the hymn, The Solid Rock by Edward Mott, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Jesus is the only savior. You are no one's savior. You are off the hook. It is not on you to be perfect because Jesus already fulfilled all righteousness. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not giving myself or you a blanket excuse to say, who the heck cares, I'm not gonna try. That's not what I'm saying, but I am saying that Romans 8.28 promises us that even when we jack things up, God's going to work all things together for good to those who love God and have been called according to his purposes. That means your shortcomings, my shortcomings, God is working them together for good. And scripture promises us That what the enemy means to use for evil, God takes and redeems for the good of his people and for his own glory. So you failed. Even if that's true, God is going to use it. He's going to use your shortcomings for his glory if you will come out of hiding into the light and entrust yourself to him. I volunteer with a ministry called Seeds of Hope based out of Camden, New Jersey, and the founders of that ministry were themselves once on the streets of the very city they now serve, buying drugs to feed their own addiction. But God delivered them from that and now uses them to minister to others in the same place. He has taken what the enemy meant for evil, He took their own failures and redeemed them for the good of his people and for his own glory because this couple was willing to take their mess and give it to him. So yes, we are going to fail. But by the blood of Jesus, we are not called failures. We are not left to hide in shame. We are imputed with the righteousness of Christ. And we are dearly loved. Romans 8 says this If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Okay, so that concludes the podcast for today. I hope you've been encouraged and empowered by the truth we discussed today. I want to remind you, Uh, One last time to please tune in next week for a very short podcast, giving a few more details about our book study and kicking off our reading for the week. So again, this is the last week to invite friends and grab a copy of the book, Jesus the King by Tim Keller, if you want uh, to participate with us and start on time. Now, as we close, uh, please receive this benediction from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26.